This week on the Managing Remote Teams podcast. I have um, a guy that worked for me that was always very interested in finances and I never thought he could really do it. And I had a bookkeeper that did it and everything. Things didn't work out with him and I had to let it go. And, that, and I thought to myself one day, he wants to do it. Let me see if he can do it. Unfortunately, now I've created a monster because now I get my knuckles wrapped every time I don't land my slips in or I don't do things the way I'm supposed to. <laughs> But it's by allowing him to learn and, and him wanting to learn, eventually it developed to a point where he did learn and he became better. You are listening to the Managing Remote Teams podcast, the show taking a kind, cool-headed and fair look at remote teams. I'm the host, Luke Shermer, and I've participated in or run distributed teams for almost a decade as a practitioner. I'm speaking with experts on leadership, strategic alignment, and remote work to help you navigate the issues you start facing after you get your working from home gear sorted. Welcome, welcome. This is Luke Shermer from the Managing Remote Teams podcast, and today we are going over a topic that is really relevant for managers who were forced to go remote at the beginning of last year, namely micromanagement. And we're speaking about micromanagement with Roman Van Dijk, who is a consultant, leadership consultant, and he overcame his own micromanaging type style, both in his own, both in his own business and as he's worked with leaders in larger companies. And in this episode, you'll learn why relationships are critical and in the context of being an effective leader, how to let go when you know that you're holding back your people, how your staff reflect your leadership style and why that particular phenomenon's critical to your own personal growth as a leader, and how to empower the people who work for you. And without further ado, let's dig into the show. Ron Van Dyck, welcome to the Managing Remote Teams podcast. So, thank you. Could you say a few words about how you got interested in leadership and, in particular, relational leadership? Okay, I've done many things in my life. I've played in bands, and I was in the Air Force, and I studied electronics and worked on uh, fighter jets and all kinds of things. But um, was never really keen on getting my hands dirty and full of hydraulic fluid and all kinds of other things. 32 years ago, I got involved in a retail corporation and worked my way up to store manager and eventually to area manager. So moved in, sort of transitioned into the managing people arena. And for years, I was a typical manager. I was in charge with my rules. You did what I told you, or I would discipline you, or get rid of you, because I had the authority and the power to do that. But 22 years ago, I, through a number of political changes like affirmative action and all kinds of things, which is called employment equity in South Africa, I ended up at the bottom of the food chain and was eventually put into a position where I had to start my own company. At that stage, I'd already moved into training and got involved in training and corporate and retail training and things. And when I started my company, I very soon realized that my management style of being the boss and micromanaging and the rest of it wasn't going to work. And I started digging around and finding out, chatting to a number of people and reading the likes of 
John C. Maxwell and Kenneth Blanchard and Brian Tracy and all these guys and later Simon Sinek and eventually realized that now, there was a reason why I wasn't happy with the way things were going because I wasn't leading. I was actually managing. So why relational leadership? Where does that come from? As I've grown older and you know, had a family and have children and grandchildren and the rest of it, I've come to realize that everything is about relationships. And to create a relationship, you eventually develop trust. So it starts with firstly being honest with yourself and with the people being open, communicating effectively, and showing genuine concern for the people that work for you. And eventually, you know, you develop relationships and with that, you'll get trust. And that's what it's built on. And then I found out that life was suddenly a lot easier. I didn't have to kick people's butts to get things done and threaten them with dismissal and all kinds of other things. They did it because they wanted to do it. And they, we had a a relationship, and that's where the relational leadership came from. When did you realize that this relational element is so important uh, in terms of the, the aha moment? <laughs> there wasn't really a definite aha moment or a light bulb moment. It, it was it transitioned into it, but it effectively started um, once I had my own business. Yeah, previously it was easy. I could explain to my superior or my director or my manager that I was reporting to why I could justify firing the person or disciplining the person and I could pass it on. But the minute I owned my own business, I was the last stop. And I suddenly had to start dealing with these things. And then I realized two main things. And the one was that I was still trying to be a drill sergeant and tell people they have to do it and then I kept having to discipline them. I kept having to shout at them and I kept having to threaten them because they weren't making the sales because they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't delivering on the projects. That was the one thing. And then the other thing that I realized that went along with it, the problem that I had, and I still from time to time need to work on it and remind myself of it, is I was micromanaging everybody because I didn't trust their skills. I was doing it myself and doing most of myself. And that made me stressed out. And because I was stressed out and tired, I was short-tempered with it. And then eventually I realized that yeah, if I start giving them a bit of room, and I, the reason I was micromanaging is because I wanted it done right the first time. I didn't want somebody to make a mistake. But in time and speaking to people, I realized that it actually started, we were talking about riding a bicycle. And um, I said to this person, yeah, you know what? My father once told me that you have to fall off a bicycle at least seven times before you can ride a bicycle. And look at all my scars on my knuckles and my knees from where I fell off a bicycle. And the person looked at me and says, oh, so you didn't ride a bike the first time. And I thought, but what was that comment for? He said, well, why do you expect anybody else to ride the bike the first time? And I thought, okay. And that sort of a transition started from there. A lot of times you need somebody looking in through the window and saying, Where's this? Where's that? Why is that not happening? How are you doing this? Why are you doing it this way? And that then creates a form of self-reflection, which is similar to what happened to me in the process. I realized that I needed to change and eventually got onto this idea. But the problem is that I don't have proper relationships and then started looking at it's about building a relationship. Hmm. was a bit funny in the beginning because they thought I was talking about office affairs, but um, I didn't <laughs> 
convince <laughs> them otherwise. Yeah. So when you say micromanaging, what specifically was something that, that you were doing and then you stopped doing? I had this uh, attitude of, I know how to do it better than you. I can do it faster than you. So I'm not going to get you to do it or teach you how to do it. I'll just do it myself. And I know it's done and I know it's done properly. I learned my lesson with that in that period. What happened as well as my son was in high school and he offered to mow the lawn for me one day. I was very pedantic about how my lawn had to be mowed and how the edges had to be trimmed and everything in that. So I was saying to him, do this. Yes, he knows. Don't worry. But now do it this way. No, he knows. And then after a while, I came out and he wasn't doing it the way I wanted. So I said, man, let me just do it myself. And I know it's done properly. And he's never mowed the lawn ever since then again. And that was about 16 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> that was one of the, the areas where I realized that you can't do everything yourself, even though you think you're the best. It was difficult for me because I'd done that for many years to now go and say, okay, you know what? Let me take some time and I'll show you. I know I'm going to lose a day or two now showing you how to do it. But in the long run, I'm going to save a lot of time by not having to do it every week myself. So let me show you how to do it. Then it came with, let me allow you to maybe not do it as perfectly as I think I do it. And eventually you will learn. And I have um, a guy that worked for me that was always very interested in finances and I never thought he could really do it. And I had a bookkeeper that did everything. And eventually things didn't work out with the bookkeeper and I had to let it go in that. And I thought to myself one day, he wants to do it. Let me see if he can do it. Unfortunately, now I've created a monster because now I get my knuckles wrapped every time I don't hand my slips in or I don't do things the way I'm supposed to. <laughs> But it's by allowing him to learn and, and him wanting to learn that eventually it developed to a point where he did learn and he became better. And one of the things that I talk about in um, building relationships is empowering other people. And effectively, if you look at the definition of empowering, it means that you're teaching somebody to do something as well or better than you do it. And I need to constantly remind myself, we, we, we creatures of it. You know, we fall back into something very quickly if we're not brought to it. So I have a, a sort of a business mentor type, it doesn't like being called a mentor, but it's somebody that I bounce things off. And I've got a number of people that I contact regularly and I sit and I have coffee, even if it's virtual coffees with the same. Yeah, just talk to me, this and this and this. I, I feel like I'm, I'm falling off the bus and it's, I'm now at a point where I need to help other people. So you know, just help me to stay on the straight and narrow as well. So I said, it, it basically for me, it got to a point where I had to understand that I had a problem and I needed help, even though I did, you know, most of it, I did it myself because, but I got input and I got advice from other people, which is the same approach that I now try and take. And as I said, with the micromanaging, it was a question Nobody did it as well as I did. Nobody could do it as quickly as I did. So I just did it myself. And I had to unlearn that skill. So have you used that relational mindset back again in a retail environment since then, like for clients or something like that? I have. I don't work so much in the retail space anymore. Mm. I, because of the leadership, it's broadened the horizons a little bit. 
So I work in a number of industries. Some of them, like the security industry, is difficult because the security industry is basically a branch of the military. And it's about rank and about giving orders and following orders. I have used it in the retail space. It works, but old habits die hard. So a lot of times they fall back on their old ways if you're not there monitoring it and, and coaxing them along all the time. So in terms of the mechanics of transitioning to more of a relational style, are there any particular shifts in mindset or things that need to happen first? Or is it just something that you explain and people can pick up? It's, there's explanation, but there's also a lot of personal experience built into it using that to try and use examples and show people. But it's basically, it's a coaxing thing. You've got to sit on somebody and say to them, try and give them a blueprint to say, do this, do that. And yeah, but that doesn't work. No, but just try it and see what happens. And in the beginning, it's awkward. So the other challenge that you face with as well is that it's difficult changing the mindset and creating relational leaders at junior and middle management level if your senior leadership is not into it. So they take it on for a while and then eventually give up because they run into a brick wall all the time. So it's not easy. Another big thing that we live in a, in a society where mistakes are not allowed. But if mistakes that provide lessons and there are lessons learned, builds experience. So if I'm allowing you to make certain mistakes, obviously not to throw my whole business under the bus, but if I'm allowing you to make controlled mistakes, and I'm not punishing you for it, you are going to trust me a lot more. Could you give a case study of somebody applying this, changing it? What's the before and the after and the problems that are overcome? Okay. One example that I have is a guy that's COO of an organization and has a bit of a military background. So it was a question of if I say so, you do it and don't question. And it, it was a battle in the beginning because... You, we revert back to what we are comfortable with, what we know. So it was constantly saying this. and But what eventually happened is it was a bit tricky because the staff and the team knew that I was working and they knew what I was doing because I was trying to involve them in the process. So I'd get you know, private WhatsApps or emails every now and then saying, he's not doing, he's shouting at me, and he's, he's not allowing it. So, it was bordering on a bickering session. But I then had to try and use this in a, a roundabout way. So in other words, I wouldn't directly approach the person. Johnny phoned and said, you're doing this again. So I would say, now how's this working? And are you trying this? Or you know, have you maybe fallen back into the habit of doing this? Then I say what the person complained about. And they'd say, yes, but it's okay, so yeah, let's work on it. So it's not always, you know, if you're building a relationship, it's not just you building a relationship with your team. It's I've got to build a relationship with you. I have to then also try and build up that relationship and say to them, you know, I can't jump down that person's throat. I can't push him and slap him around. Um, I've got to try and set the example. So it's a challenge if you've got somebody that's been doing something for the last 15, 20, 25 years to now suddenly get them to change gears and go in the other direction. It's been three and a half years that I've now been closely working uh, with 
this person and this organization, not just on the coaching side. There's now other things that have come up, other areas that I train in that has now also come out of it. You can see over time, you see slowly, you see the difference and you see the change. With this guy, we have actually become very good friends as well in the process. And the other day I was um, speaking to one of the women that works with him that has complained about all her previous employers. And one of them approached her and asked her if she wanted to come back for more money. And she said she'll never leave the perfect boss she has now. So I'm assuming that there's obviously the change has taken place that they're now happy with, with him and what's happening. What about in the context of a project or projects where you need leadership and you need management and there's a group of people for a fixed period of time? How does that affect the, the dynamics in terms of the relationships needed to, to drive the projects, in your opinion? When it comes to projects, the biggest stumbling block usually with getting projects going is that the leadership needs to come out of denial. They need to admit that there's a problem and they need help. Because if they don't admit it and they don't realize that there is an issue and they need help, then I'm going to, I nearly use the, you can edit this part out. I'm going to fart against thunder. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll leave it in. Because <laughs> that's effectively what's going to be happening. It's you're going to be banging your head against the wall and getting frustrated and you're going to feel that what you're doing is not working. Yeah, let's face it. We don't live in a fairy tale world. Some work, some don't work. Some I've had clients that say, yes, I want it. I need that. Come, come talk to my staff. And I said, no, but I need to talk. Come talk to my staff. And it eventually falls flat because the kingpin, the, the main, the CEO, the COO, the, the, the main leader doesn't take on. They expect the team to change, but they don't want to change. And it's not going to work. You're not going to get respect and trust if you don't earn it. And you have to take the first step. What are the problems that you're hired to solve in a company? Like you, you were saying before that, yes, yes, come and talk to my people. What are, what are customers hiring you for? It basically starts off, they you know, come in, oh, do the leadership training. Come and speak to my people. My people are not engaged. They are not committed. They, uh, there's no driving them. They are not doing the sales they're supposed to be doing. They're not, they've been taught to do certain tasks and they're not doing it. And then immediately I know that the problem is not necessarily with the staff. The problem is, is with the leader. Mm. But I can't, you know, now it's a process of coming in and saying, okay, so this, this. And then usually when I make the proposal, I say, okay, we can do the following things, but I'm going to need you to do these things for me. And then I engage them and say, really, do I, I say yes, because... It's a two-way street. It's not going to work if you do You need to do the following for me, then I can get them to do the following. And in that way, I then eventually start engaging the leader. I spent, in the beginning with my training career, I spent training, as I said, you know, junior middle management. And it's incredibly frustrating because you get them all hyped up and motivated and they go back to work. And three days later, they realize that everything at work is the same. The boss is still the same. And they just revert back to the old habits of watching the clock uh, just as a guy said, being, doing enough just to collect the paycheck. So the change has to start at the top and the example has to come from the top. And But I need a foot in the door without going at the strategy that I use. I learned when I used to do retail training where customer service is a very 
sensitive issue. Now, if somebody says to you, you've got to go on customer service training, your first question is, what's wrong with my customer service? But it's not necessarily that there's something wrong with your customer service. So I have certain intros to getting them to buy into it and to listen to me. Um, first thing that I tell them, the customer's not always right. And that type of thing. Customer may be important. And the only reason your boss sent you on this is because he wants to make more money. And then, because that's what it is. It's about getting the people to come back. But what I used to do to get the training is if I walk into an organization, I say, uh, listen, Mr. CEO, Mr. MD, your team's customer service sucks. Uh, you need this. He's going to kick me out of his business because nobody wants to know that their team is not good enough. Yeah. And I used to use the same tactic. You come in via a side door or a back door. So I used to walk around and watch and take notes and see, oh, yeah. they're standing around, not serving the customer, but they're enjoying a candy bar or something, or they're having a drink and they're not supposed to, they're not wearing their name badge or their uniform is dirty or something to that effect that is contrary to normal customer service practices. And then I would approach the Indian and say, I do customer service training, but you know, what makes our training different is we focus specifically on you know, people standing on the floor eating or people whose uniform is dirty or people not wearing their name badges. We concentrate on those things. And then he usually turns around and says, that's the exact problem I've got. I say, okay, maybe I can help you. So he's now admitted that he has a problem. And that's the biggest thing to get people to change their habits is to get them to admit that what they're doing is not working. But we don't always want to do that. We don't want to look silly or you know, be ashamed of where we are and things that are not working. So we need to get out of denial. We need to, it's the same as curing an alcoholic or a drug addict or something. They need to admit that they've got a problem because only then can you help them. How have things looked for your clients during lockdown, during the last year, basically? My sister's daughter is in the UK. She says they're now in the third lockdown already. But I mean, for seven, eight months, it was crazy. People were in lockdown. And then I just say, you know what? It's not that bad. My grandmother was in the Second World War. She was in lockdown for, um, for seven years, six, seven years. And to make matters worse, they used to bomb them and shoot at them. At least they're not shooting at us. So it's a question of, yeah, you have to try and get them positive. It was difficult for me because I had to contend with it myself as a business owner. But fortunately, I don't have a, a large organization. Um, I have mostly freelance people that work for me, and I have two or three people. But the point is that I had to then try and still keep these people positive and stay positive myself. I got a bit of a feeling of what they go through, where you have to keep other people positive and build relationships with other people when it's not going that well with yourself. How do you create a context with a relationship that is positive? Is there any particular way you can approach it or think about it that would be helpful? I, I push a number of factors. It starts off with you know, identifying what you've done wrong, forgive yourself, like yourself, respect yourself, and then it'll rub off on other people. I know it sounds up in the air, airy, fairy, you know, fairy tale type stuff, but it is unfortunately a fact. It's not always something that you can quantify, but it's important. If you start to like yourself and other people will then start to like you because you will act more likable. 
because you like yourself. And you need to get to a point where you like yourself. And if you start liking yourself, it'll become easier to like other people. So you need to like yourself. And it's not necessarily about um, agreeing with your point of view. It's not necessarily about taking on your point of view, but I need to accommodate your point of view and I need to accommodate your viewpoints, whether it comes to race, religion, sexual orientation, uh, political affiliation, whatever. So you know, we have to, we use these catchphrases. We have to embrace diversity. I know it's easy to say, and I know of late we've had a number of issues where we've seen again that there's not tolerance for one another in society and then it causes major problems. So unless you're working with, if there's four of you and you quadruplets uh, working in an organization that you look the same, think the same, um, it's not going to be. We sit with all kinds of diversity in the workplace. And if you're a leader, you need to concentrate on leading and not judging. If it's, uh, that explains it. We look at, at blaming. We blame people to manipulate them. We blame people to, as a defense mechanism. Um, but if we can get away from that, we stop blaming ourselves and we stop blaming other people and accept responsibility for our actions and our mistakes, then the other people will do the same thing. And if we allow people to fall down every now and then, I used, in, I came a couple of years back, I used an example of my granddaughter when she was about a year old, she was starting to stand up and wanting to walk and the rest of it. And then she would struggle up and eventually she'd get that she stood upright and then she'd fall down again. And then everybody would cheer and then she'd stand up and, she, and after a couple of days, she managed to stand long enough. And then I always used to ask the people, I said, but uh, if that was you with your employees and they made a mistake, you fire them. Can you imagine if my son, the first time my granddaughter fell down, said, as a stupid child, let's get rid of it, let's get another one. We don't do that. We need to learn to tolerate. But also with babies and children, you know, we accept a lot more. And then when they become adults, suddenly they, be, they become idiots and they're not good enough. And then we need to punish them and discipline them and the rest of it. So what's the best place for people to find out more about what you do? What's the the best place? I think LinkedIn is probably the best because then we can chat and, and have conversations and, and catch up that way. YouTube is primarily me putting out content. And the website is also you getting information. Also on my website, there is a, a button or a link to booking a 15-minute chat, so can do that as well if they want to. They can just look up Rowan, R-O-W-A-N-B-A-N-D-Y-K. If they Google it, if you type in my name, I do occupy a number of pages. So, Except so, there's a very nice-looking young girl in the States, also called Rowan Van Dyke, but her D, she's not D-Y-K, she's D-Y-K-E. <laughs> she's a lot prettier than I am, but she doesn't do what I do. <laughs> think LinkedIn would probably be the best option. Okay, great. Thank you very much. That was a great conversation with Rowan. And I think this topic is something that isn't really going to go away. And while it may be easier to manage when you're in person, certainly in a remote environment, it becomes even more important to be able to do this. 
The most valuable thing that I took away from this is just the reinforcement that when you do move away from micromanagement, you save a lot of time by being able to delegate things effectively, and you've got much happier people because they're doing what they want to be doing while still achieving your goals uh, as a company. Tune in next week where we will be going into the fascinating topic of axiology in the context of project management. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Managing Remote Teams podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts and reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn with any feedback or thoughts that you have for a future show.